Church is not a spectator sport. Unlike the Super Bowl or the Olympics, which millions, if not billions of people will be watching today. Those are spectator sports, which we can enjoy watching and consuming from our couches. And despite the handful of similarities and the way that the last couple of years have maybe exacerbated this issue, church is not meant to be just spectated and consumed, which I say with absolutely no judgment over the last couple of years. I understand our, our situations in life. But I will say that virtual alternatives must not replace embodied worship permanently. And I doubt that I need to convince most of you of this. But I may need to remind many of you that church is not a spectator sport. It's more of a construction or building project. You wouldn't plop a lazy boy or a lawn chair down in the middle of a construction site telling the workers there, I'm just going to sit down here and watch you for a while. No, if we're, if we're on site, we're involved in the project. God is at work in us, and he's building us together for his glory. Church is also, even more so, like a living, moving organism. The biblical picture is of a body. We're meant to, to be together, to move together, to serve each other, to, to help each other grow. And the question for us today is, are we playing our part? I believe that the time for just sitting back and taking things in is over. The time has come to, to shake off our rust, to stretch our atrophied muscles, and resume building up the body and growing together as the body of Christ. Today, I believe God's Word can teach us or remind us about how to do this effectively. So if you would, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. We have a simple mission statement as a church. You can see it on our website, on the bulletins, other places. It's just to worship God, grow together, and serve others. And there may not be a better passage anywhere in the Bible than the one we're in today to focus in on that second part of the statement of our mission, to grow together. Remember here that chapter 4 in Ephesians is the turning point of the whole book, where Paul moves from laying out the beautiful truths of the gospel to describing how the gospel then impacts our lives on a daily basis. To put it plainly, like I said last week, when we're in Christ, our lives change to become like Christ. It's automatic. And as we saw, those who are called to Christ are called to a new way of life, which involves reflecting Christ's character to one another and reflecting the oneness of God to the world around us. Let me just read those first six verses, which we looked at last week again. Follow along with me. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And if those verses hammered home the point that we are to be one under our one God, the next part of the chapter here tells us that we're still meant to be different and diverse. So, we're the same. We've got all the most important things in common, but we're also different. And that's more than okay. That's how God designed us. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And he continues, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we're all part of one body under one God, yet they're still each one of us. See, unity in Christ is not uniformity. It's never, it was never meant to obliterate our individuality or our personality. You may think that diversity would be at odds with unity, or at least be a danger to it. But what I think Ephesians 4 tells us is that diversity actually enhances true unity. Diversity enhances unity. Now, as we hear the call to a new way of life, the call to live united with other believers, it may sound quite intimidating to you. And I get it, because it's a high calling. It's hard to be humble, patient, or loving, especially with people who can be so different than us. But this is one of the reasons I find the passage we're looking at today so encouraging. Because not only does it say, it it begins by saying that every believer has been given grace from God. Special grace for this task of reflecting Christ to those around us. But it goes on to explain that this grace that we receive is everything we really need. See, here's the point. Christ has given us everything we need in order to grow together by giving us each other. Christ has given us everything we need in order to grow together by giving us each other. Imagine being dropped off at the the foot of a big mountain and told to climb the mountain, but without being equipped to do so. So you have no boots, No proper clothing, no food, water, supplies. Climbing that mountain would seem scary, dangerous, even impossible under those conditions. And living the Christian life can sometimes seem as challenging or insurmountable as climbing a mountain, even if we're just talking about getting to a church gathering or reconciling a broken relationship, or repenting of a habitual sin in our lives can seem insurmountable. And we think we're, we're standing there helpless, at, hopeless at the base of a mountain with nothing, not realizing that God has already outfitted and equipped us with all we really need by giving us grace in the form, we're going to see, 
of the gifts and abilities of one another. Look again, verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So that means we've been graced in the proportion that Christ chooses to grace us. He decides how gifted, talented, or skilled people will be to varying degrees. However, it's clear that everyone, every believer is gifted in some way to each one of us and thus has a role to play. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you've been saved by Jesus, then you've also been gifted by Jesus. It comes with the territory. No one misses out on God's generosity here. Unlike, say, in the movie Encanto, where one family member misses out on a gift while everyone else has gifts. No, no one misses out here. Brian Chapel comments, our different personalities, abilities, and experiences are gifts that God provides us so that we will bring many different talents and perspectives for building and extending Christ's church. The sweet side of this reality is that we have complementary strengths, weaknesses, interests, and personalities. The distasteful side is that these differences cause us to get on each other's nerves. We often end up wondering, like, why other people can't just be more like us? But this was God's intentional design. Our variety reflects his generosity. As Chapel concludes, in this variety, he is sharing more of himself than can be contained in any one of us. Not any one of us has to do all the work of the kingdom because Christ has not given all of his gifts to any one person. Thank God for that. And then, notice that this giving of gifts flows out of Jesus' work in the gospel. It goes on to say in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And everyone goes, what? <laughs> what? These verses seem confusing, right? Let me try to explain. Verse 8 is a quotation from Psalm 68 which sings about God being like a victorious king who conquers his enemies, saves his people, and then returns in a triumphant parade. Paul sees Jesus as the fulfillment of that image from Psalm 68. Jesus is the conquering victorious king. Though instead of ascending home to Mount Zion, Jesus ascended in glory to heaven. Verses 9 and 10 in the parentheses there are Paul saying that Jesus has to be the one spoken of in Psalm 68. Because for someone to ascend, they have to descend first. And Jesus is the only one who descended from heaven before ascending again. So the same one who is exalted and now sits victoriously on heaven's throne is the same person who first came down to live, die, and rise for us. This truth may seem 
totally out of left field. Why is this relevant or important here? Well, for one, it means Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth. As it says, he descended, he the one who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's Jesus. Therefore, it means he also has the authority to dispense gifts exactly as he wishes to. He can give them to whom he wants, how he wants, and in the amount he wants. Which implies that for us to despise others' gifts is to despise Christ's authority. Like if you have been extraordinarily gifted, you can't be prideful about it. Because it's a gift. And if you have been what you might think is underwhelmingly gifted, you can't be jealous or envious. You're still gifted by the king of the universe. Every one of us has received grace to grow together in just the way King Jesus decided we need. But also, another thing here, these verses are saying something surprising, I think, about the nature of the gifts that Christ gives. I found this pretty fascinating, but I apologize if I lose you for a couple minutes. It's kind of deep. Please humor me for a minute. Okay, so when the verse from Psalm 68 is quoted here, it says that he led a host of captives. It's easy to assume that he's talking about enemies he's defeated, prisoners of war. However, there's a confusing part of this quotation when you look closely. Verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a, host of, led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Because in Psalm 68, it doesn't say God gave gifts, but that he received gifts. What's with that? Did Paul just completely change the meaning of this verse? No. Both the receiving and giving of gifts can refer to the same event, and I believe they do. Some scholars point out that Psalm 68 is likely alluding to yet another Bible passage, back in Numbers 18. There, it talks about the Levites being chosen from among the people of Israel to belong to God in a special way as his chosen ministers. He took them out of the people to serve him. But then, having taken the Levites for himself, God then gives them back to Israel. Numbers 18.6 puts it this way, And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. Put simply, the Levites were gifts to God from his people and gifts from God to his people. Therefore, moving back to Psalm 68, God's captives here weren't likely his enemies. They were his hand-selected ministers that he received out of the people. And at the same time as receiving them, he also gave them back to his people, which is why Paul now in Ephesians 4 
tweaks the wording to emphasize God's giving, because he's talking about the gifts God gives. And this points to perhaps the most surprising thing about these gifts, these graces from God. They aren't just special talents or skills that God doles out, though he does do that. The gifts Jesus gives us here are other people. He gives us other people. And in this context, what Paul says next in Ephesians makes perfect sense. In verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. What gifts did he give? He gave people. And Christ has given us everything we need in order to grow together by giving us each other. Verse 11 there starts out listing out five different kinds of leaders that Christ empowered. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now there's a lot of debate about what each of these roles entails and if they are mere giftings or formal positions and whether or not they still have a place in the church today. All kinds of debate. But what is clear and undebated is the great variety of gifts that Christ gives here. We're not all the same. We have different gifts and different passions in different proportions. And believers need that variety of gifts in order to grow best and most healthily. First says there's apostles and prophets, people Paul mentioned earlier in Ephesians, as those laying the foundation for the church that God was building. They were given divine revelation or eyewitness experiences to proclaim. And whether or not they are still active, we still actively benefit from their ministry today. The foundations that lay, they laid. There are also evangelists, those who are gifted in a special way to proclaim the gospel in a way that makes it plain and relevant and attractive to lost people who need to hear it. Then there are shepherds or pastors those entrusted with the ongoing care of God's flock. These are likely synonymous with overseers and elders in the New Testament. They are people that God has gifted to lead, to nurture, to spiritually care for his people. And Paul may or may not be referring to the same people when he next mentions teachers, those who can explain or apply God's word, exhorting people with the truth. All pastors or elders are, able to, are to be able to teach, but not all teachers are also pastors. Actually, teaching is an aspect of all the roles mentioned in that verse. It is vital to the continuing health of the church. Now, I could read a verse like that and, and say something bold like, I am God's gift to you. <laughs> and I wouldn't be lying but that would give the utterly wrong impression. First of all, the fact that these leaders are gifts from God implies something for me. That I am to use any giftings like these for the sake of others, for the sake of the church, not to let them lie dormant. I am to spend myself on your behalf, not squandering a gift, 
but being responsible, faithful. Also, me taking pride in one of these positions would seem to say that the ministry is all about me. Puts the focus on me, but it's not. It's not, I'm not actually called to just do the work of church ministry myself or even alongside other pastors or elders. Look at our calling here. It says, and he gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. In other words, you don't just need me, I need you. We need each other. Like leaders are meant to be conduits of God's grace to equip all believers. So my job as a pastor is not to do ministry so that you all benefit from and consume my service. My job is to equip you to do ministry so we all serve and grow together. Get that? This is something that God recently really convicted me of personally as I realized how much I was trying to take on myself as if I could handle it all. Instead of training and equipping, delegating and entrusting things to other people, I had to repent, remind myself that I am not the Savior. I'm a servant. And so are you. Many of you are already serving in a variety of ways, serving the Lord. Bravo. Thank you. Like, keep it up. Like, we need you and your gifts. Don't grow weary in doing good. Some of you might not be actively serving right now, and I don't want to guilt you into serving today. I want to say it's very possible that I've failed you, that we have failed to equip you. You need, I believe you need to be serving in the ministry of the church, but it's not because it's some mandatory obligation for you. You need to be serving in the ministry of the church because it's what you were made for, what you were gifted for. Grace was given to each one of us. And when God has been so abundantly gracious to us, it should be a joy to use our particular giftings to serve others. If he has gifted you, there's a reason for that. He wants you to be involved in the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, if you have been equipped to work, I lovingly urge you to get to work <laughs> or get back to work. And if you have not been equipped, but God puts this desire in your heart today, please reach out to us. Let us help equip you for the work of the ministry. If this is a building site, construction site, we've got to get off the lawn chairs and grab a hard hat. And beyond Sunday mornings even, and we really need one another to be doing informal, personal ministry every day at every opportunity that God brings along our paths. Paul Tripp describes this really well. He says, a successful carpenter uses many tools, each one designed for a particular job. God has a huge toolbox, 
and his principal tools are his children. Sadly, many people in the church do not see themselves this way. They think of ministry as something for the paid professional. When they think of their own involvement, they don't think very far beyond saying a prayer or making a meal. Yet their adoption into the family of God was also a call to ministry, a call to be part of the good work of the kingdom. The overall biblical model is this. God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. Much more informal, personal ministry goes on than formal ministry. The times of formal, public ministry are meant to train God's people for the personal ministry that is the lifestyle of the body of Christ. Get that? I want you to maybe shift your mindset today on what ministry looks like to you. Next time you have someone over to hang out, or next small group meeting, or next conversation you have, even today, you can do ministry. Be thinking. How might I minister to this other person, sharing Christ's love with them, whether through encouragement, or counsel, or prayer, or scripture, or a hug? Are you allowed to hug yet? Someone needs it, you're allowed to hug. (laughs) The church is built up as we all realize we have an important part to play and start playing it. And here's the end goal. Look at verse 13. It says, We do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, deceitful schemes. Verse 13 describes sanctification, and verse 14, stability. As leaders equip the church and people minister to one another in the church, this empowers us to grow. To grow in unity, it says, and knowledge, maturity, Christ-likeness. Notice, though, that verse 13 says, we attain to all these things together until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We all do this together. Like Truly healthy Christian growth does not happen in isolation, but in community. Also notice, way back in verse 3, it said that we already have a unity of the Spirit that we're to maintain. We looked at that last week. But now in verse 13, it says that the unity of the faith is something to attain to. Which is it? Something we have or something that we need to reach? It's both. We already have objective, ultimately unbreakable unity in Christ. But we obviously are not yet perfectly united here and now. And so in that sense, it's a goal to aspire to, to grow into. We also, it says, are to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. I think that refers to the gospel. The knowledge about Jesus what he's done in dying and rising again. 
We need this knowledge if we're to be saved from our sins. And we need this knowledge if we are to be continually sanctified, made holy. Today, you may need to first consider if you know Jesus at all. You may have some basic knowledge of him, but do you really know him as Lord and Savior? Have you been forgiven and cleansed, united to Christ, incorporated into his body? I hope so. And if not, I hope you know you can do this today. You can begin the journey we're all on towards full knowledge of the Son of God. As we use our, our gifts to equip and serve one another, we do grow towards that goal. That's where we're going. And one day this will be our ultimate destination. We will be mature. We will be like Christ. Are you thankful for the gifts that God gives us in each other to help us get there? Verse 14 describes the other side of a maturity in Christ, which helps us right now, not just in the future, but now. It says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 13 spoke of growing to mature manhood, which is the opposite of staying a child. So that we may no longer be children. And all the kids go, what's wrong with being children? <laughs> well, nothing. It's only that none of us are meant to stay as children or immature. And immature believers, young or old, are more vulnerable to certain dangers. Like a, a boat in a storm at sea, which is something Paul had personally experienced more than once. Winds howling, waves crashing, tossed to and fro, back and forth by the powerful waves or, or carried about here or there by the prevailing winds. Ships stand to be hopelessly lost at the end of a storm, if not shipwrecked. So, what are the dangers that we face as Christians? What are the storms? Well, there are many, of course. But the particular focus here is on dangerous teachings. Paul mentions three things. Wind of doctrine, human cunning, and craftier deceitful schemes. There are people who unintentionally are not will aim to lead you astray. They will propose new doctrines that sound attractive, but are unfaithful to the word of God. They may appear smart, educated, hence the ability to be cunning. Some will be outright deceptive, and many people will buy into their lies. And because their ideas are so popular, they, they grow and grow in appeal. And the waves crash and the winds blow. This happens all the time. 
And it's no insult to newer Christians to say that they are more susceptible to these teachings. The less mature someone is, the more easily influenced they are by the latest popular book or hip preacher or theological fad. But don't miss the point of this verse. It's saying we don't need to fall prey to these dangers. Say, if we are growing together as a church, as we ought, we will not easily be blown off course. We'll stand the ground. God has given everything we need in order to grow and mature in each other. We have the ability to weather the storm. So all of this leads to the question of, how do we do this? How are we leaders supposed to equip believers well? How are believers supposed to minister to each other well? How do we build up the body of Christ? How do we grow into maturity? Thankfully, we're given a clear answer. Verse 15 tells us, look, rather, so rather than being unstable in the storm, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so here's the point. Christ has given us everything we need in order to grow together as we speak truth in love. We've been given everything we need in order to grow together as we speak the truth in love to each other. Rather, speaking the truth in love. These are the means by which we grow, and they are the truest marks of our growth. And we need both truth and love together. If a church has truth without love, they will hurt a lot of people with the truth. And if a church has love without truth, they'll hug a lot of people to hell. We need both. And these are, there are two things that I can almost guarantee every one of us will do every day. We will all run into and interact with someone else. Whether in person or online, in our families, we see other people. And we will all speak with them. Typing, texting, face-to-face, -face, we speak. So, speaking the truth in love can impact the way we live just about every day of our lives. It's something we can put into practice every day. If we, as a church, if we are going to evangelize and shepherd and teach well, we need to speak the truth. If our small groups are going to study the Bible well, we need to study and speak the truth. We need to be willing to speak the truth to one another in, in confronting sin or in pursuing reconciliation with someone. We need sermons and songs and kids' Sunday school classes that are filled with truth. As Jesus prayed in John 17, if we're to be sanctified, we need to be sanctified in the truth. But we need to do all of this immersed in love for the people we're ministering to. Which is why we need to be developing personal relationships with those around us. 
This is a, a great benefit of, of being part of a small group on a regular basis, where we don't just study the truth, but we get to know and love one another. Love is why we must faithfully pray for one another and pray with one another, why we must serve and give to and encourage one another and show hospitality. Love is why we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There is real power for life transformation and spiritual growth in speaking the truth in love. Because truth the truth confronts us with reality unflatteringly. It exposes flaws and sins. It, it opens our eyes to blind spots. It convicts us. But love doesn't leave us there indifferently. Love offers help. It advises solutions. It seeks to help lift us back off the ground. It forgives. It affirms or encourages good things about us. It points us to Jesus and the gospel. And let's not forget, he's the point of all this. Jesus was, first of all, he was the perfect example of speaking the truth in love. He spoke the truth wisely and patiently until we killed him for it. But he willingly sacrificed his life even then because he loved us. Jesus is also the ultimate goal of our growth. Did you see that here? It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He is our head. We are centered on Christ and led by Christ. And we're to grow up in every way into him. To him. Here's our final point today. Christ has given us everything we need in order to grow together until we are fully like him. We are given everything we need in order to grow together until we are fully like Christ. Back in verse 13, it said, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and notice the end, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've got a, a door in our home where we measure our kids on their birthdays to show how much they've grown year after year. And one day, some of them will likely reach my wife's or my height or pass us. I remember as I grew up measuring myself against my own parents' stature. Now, we will never pass Christ, but do you see what he's doing here? He's actually holding himself up as the measuring stick for us. He wants us to keep growing until we reach his height. And remarkably, astonishingly, miraculously, one day we'll measure up. It gets a foregone conclusion here. It says, we will be built up 
until we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ gives us everything we need in order to grow together until we're fully like him. We see this truth again at the end of the passage, where again it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, the picture is that we are a body, a living organism of which Christ is the head. What do our heads do for our bodies? They control them, right? They lead them. Our heads direct our lines of sight. They provide our senses of hearing and smell. They nourish us with food and drink. They house our brains, our intelligence. Really, they are our source of life. You lose your head, you lose your life. Christ is all of this for the church and so much more. He's our source. He's our leader. He's our life. But you see, our body needs to grow into our head like kids grow into shoes. Like we're not yet grown up to match our head. But one day, we will be. And Christ's body will finally complement him. And even now, our body is growing as we all work together properly, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm over 35 now, which means my body randomly decides to tell me I'm getting older. <laughs> I will hurt my shoulder sleeping, or I'll throw out my back with a sneeze. As we get older, our bodies gradually stop working as well. But just the opposite is true of the body of Christ. As we grow up, each part begins working better and better. We learn to use our gifts better. We learn to value each other more. We mature in speaking the truth in love to one another. What Paul is, is saying here in verse 16 is basically that, that Christ makes his body fit together perfectly so that all of us together are, are healthy and growing as we ought to be. And just like our physical bodies, we are totally interconnected and interdependent. Christ has chosen us to be part of a body. And Paul Tripp explains, think of how different a hand is from an eye or a shoulder joint from a liver. The human body is a picture of intelligent, intentional design. Each part has been carefully crafted and placed to do its work. So is the body of Christ. Not all God's people are the same. Each of us has been gifted, called, and positioned to do our part in God's kingdom work. Our histories, personalities, abilities, and maturity levels differ, which is how the Redeemer intends it. He is sovereign over it all. Most of the time, we are oblivious to this. 
We are too easily captivated by our own self-centered little worlds. But Ephesians 4 propels us beyond a life consumed by personal happiness and achievement. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense. Something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. So the question is, is still what I asked earlier. Are you playing your part in the body of Christ? What is your part to play? Is your part of the body working properly? How might we better equip you to flourish in your part? You need the body, and the body needs you. We're in this together. Now, this sermon is not a sales pitch just trying to get you to sign up for things. But I do want to make clear what opportunities are here at Calvary that you might have to get involved in the work of the ministry here, growing together, serving others here. Many opportunities are described on an online sign-up page we have at calvarybaptistchurch.ca slash serve. And just very simple, slash serve. You can sign up or request more information there. Then at calvarybaptistchurch.ca slash small groups, there are ongoing or new groups you can join, which I believe provide an environment for us to learn and practice speaking the truth in love together, to grow together. And the links to those pages are also available in our bulletin. You don't have to write them down if you have one of them. But today, I want you to know that I am thankful to the Lord for you. I need you in my life. I most of all need the Lord. But I will only experience his fullness now in his people. There's a reason why we're called his body. We represent him to one another. I have been given a gift which, Lord willing, will be spent on helping you grow. But my gift was not designed to function in isolation. I need your gifts too. And, I, and so I am thankful that Christ has given us each other until we become like him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please continue your work in our hearts. Keep speaking the truth to us. May we know the truth and love the truth and may it spill out of us to those around us. We need you. We thank you for all the gifts that you have given us. How blessed we are. We pray that we would be faithful to use them for your glory and your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.